Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Drinks with Allie podcast, where we're talking everything from red, red wine to pina coladas. My name is Allie, and I'll be your host on this wonderful Wine Wednesday. This is episode 15, and today is Wednesday, January 20th. Today, we're going to take a little look at old world versus new world wines. We'll take a look at physical locations, some stylistic differences, how to read the different labels, and why it even matters, or if it really does. So let's jump on in. New world versus old world. To start, we have to look at geography. Geography is actually hugely important when it comes to wine. When studying, both in school and with my psalm levels, we do a lot of map work. I mean, a lot. From regions to subregions to single vineyard sites, we map it all. I never thought I would study geography as much as I have since starting wine into the wine re- industry. But... Uh, we look at these sites and we look at how they interact with their geography around them, even down to the rocks and the soil composition, um, in order to figure out what makes a region or an area so unique and so special. But in terms of old world versus new world, old world basically means anything on the continent of Europe. So France, Germany, Spain, Italy, Portugal are the five big ones that spring to mind. And they're definitely the five kind of original old world wine regions. However, we can now also add Hungary, Austria, Croatia, Greece, Israel, Slovakia, England, Lebanon, Switzerland, Syria, and the rest of the Middle East. With that in mind, um, Lebanon, Greece, Israel, Syria, and the rest of the Middle East are now what we would call the ancient world of wines. So there's been a definitive split even within old world Um, versus ancient world. Traditionally, though, we just lump the big or original five into the old world and completely forget about the rest of the areas. Um, When I was in school, this was definitely the case. So most of this is because sommeliers and other wine professionals are terribly snobby as a generalization and rather set in their ways. And for a long, long time, these five countries were considered the be-all and end-all of the world of wines. And especially in the world of old world wines. Now, when we were in school, we definitely only spoke about those five. We spent maybe five minutes on Israel and Greece, um, kind of as a side thought, hey, this is where like a lot of original wines came from. Hungary and Austria were definitely starting to become a bit of a thing. So I think we maybe spent one class lumping both of those together. Maybe we talked about Switzerland. England was maybe just starting to plant vines. Um, or, I graduated 12 years ago, so um, it's been quite a while since I was involved in that. But I'm assuming now they're talking a little bit more. And even things like here in Canada, so I went to a Canadian school um, in Niagara, which is our main wine-growing region. In Canada, we have four regions that grow wine, three that grow them on quite a scale and one that's quite a bit smaller. So we have Ontario, British Columbia, Nova Scotia, and Quebec. In school, we spent maybe a minute saying, yep, Quebec grows some grapes. It's probably pretty terrible. Don't want to go there. About five minutes on Nova Scotia, basically saying the same thing. Yep, they grow grapes. They're kind of crazy for trying. Who knows? Might end up with something someday. And then we spent weeks learning Ontario and British Columbia. So you can see how maybe the older generation of sommeliers and wine professionals versus a newer generation There's just that gap 
in knowledge. And if you aren't updating yourself and you aren't learning constantly, there might be a bit of a disconnect there for your professional, whoever you're talking to. Um, now having said that, obviously here in Nova Scotia, we grow amazing wines and definitely a lot of champagne style or traditional methods, sparkling wines because our climate is very similar. So who, who would have thought, I definitely wouldn't have pegged it 12, 13 years ago when we were talking about it as being a leading wine region for sparkling wine production. For new world wines though, the easy way to remember them is that if one of the original five, so France, Germany, Spain, Italy, Portugal, or England invaded and colonized that country, they probably grow wine and are considered part of the new world. So we have Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Argentina, and Chile, making up the vast majority of these new world wine regions. Again, there are small pockets in other countries. So Pakistan, India, I believe there's vines growing in um, New Guinea, Uruguay, Paraguay, Patagonia, But for the most part, these seven are what we would call the new world. And definitely, if you're in a wine shop, that's going to be where they're getting most of their quote-unquote new world wines. It's going to be from one of those seven countries. And, excuse me, most likely it's going to be the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and maybe Argentina or Chile because they tend to produce more and have a more global market um, than some of the other regions do. So geographically, all of these regions fall between 30 and 50 degrees latitude on either side of the equator. So that is where vines thrive, is between 30 and 50 degrees latitude. If you're looking on a map, um, you can actually track all of the wine regions. They fall within there. There are obviously outliers that fall outside of these latitudes, as in all winemaking, and there are always always mavericks, that are willing to push the envelope and find more and more marginal places to grow grapes and make wines. Now, this is why somewhere like Nova Scotia has thrived, places like England have thrived, Patagonia has thrived, because there was these maverick winemakers that were willing to push and see and be like, oh, I'm going to try. I'm going to see what I can do in this little tiny region and see what happens. Generally, all of these regions plant their vines north to south. So if you're looking at a vineyard and you're looking down between two rows of grapes, you're probably standing north to south in orientation. Uh, This is so that as the sun rises and sets, the grapes are exposed to the largest amount of sunlight on a daily basis. Remember, after all, grapes are a plant crop that needs sunlight to grow, just like the lettuce in your garden, the apple tree, your strawberry plants, whatever it is, they all need daylight in order to photosynthesize and create a crop, grapevines are no different. And orienting them north to south gives you the best exposure of that sunlight. It's the largest amount. Now, if you're growing somewhere and it's really hot and you maybe don't want to expose your vines to so much sunlight, you might rotate where your vines are growing. But that's knowing your own personal geography or your microclimate, and the winemaker or grape grower is going to have spent years figuring that out. We tend to see this trend in older wineries, um, especially in British Columbia, where it's a bit of a desert, the Napa Valley, Sonoma Valleys, again, it's a little bit deserty, or in Australia, same thing, it's a little bit deserty. So they've kind of figured that out over the years. It's been decades they've been watching these sites. Stylistically speaking, uh, old world versus new world gets a little muddy. 
meaning that while we tend to generalize how one region grows and vinifies or makes wine, there are, they are just that. They're generalizations. So while we can say New World wines tend to be higher in alcohol, more full-bodied, fruit-driven, and riper, there are Old World wines that have the same stylistic markers. On the other hand, we may say that generally Old World wines are lighter in body, uh, exhibiting more herb, earth, mineral, or floral notes, but there are plenty of New World wines that also check all of these boxes off. So as wine lovers, we tend to also think of Old World being traditional with the idea of if it isn't broken, don't fix it, while the New World gets to invoke ideas of modernization with technology, science, corporations, and big marketing dollars behind them. And while we certainly see far more technology in the new world, there are plenty of old world wineries being taken over by younger generations that are all too willing to embrace change and modernization. So these are winemakers who are third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation winemakers. And they're coming in and they're looking at a site and they're going, we've grown these grapes here for hundreds of years and they've always given us terrible fruit and terrible wine. So why do we keep growing the same grape in the same spot? Why not change it up? Let's try something different. They're also more willing to play with different vessels for fermentation. So traditionally, we would see oak or stainless steel as your traditional fermentation vessels. And traditionally, 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 like old, 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 old school, it would be clay. New generation winemakers are playing with those three, as well as with concrete eggs, giant vats um, that are oak or giant clay vats. So we're seeing a bit of a different trend. Um, There's also plenty of big money being spent in old world wineries. So it's not just the new world that has all these big marketing dollars behind them anymore. Thanks in large part to a huge uptick in celebrity and sports figures buying into, buying up, or collaborating with old world wineries. There might be a show in there somewhere. So you're seeing celebrities buy into or buy up old world wineries and vineyards or new world wineries and vineyards and dropping big bucks into them. That's giving them huge marketing dollars. But just like there are tiny wineries in the old world, there's tiny wineries in the new world. And they don't have big money to play with. So, um, you know, that's where the garagiste uh, movement came from in France. So a garagiste is a winemaker who makes wine out of their garage. They were originally a group of winemakers who were grape growers, and they had these plots of land, and they mostly sold their wine or their grapes to the bigger houses or chateaus in the regions, and they took care of making all the wine, and they themselves didn't do anything beyond growing the grapes. And they started to hold back some of their grapes and make their own wine and experiment and see what they could do. And little by little, they kind of took over more and more of their own vineyard for their own personal use. A lot of these guys are, I believe, split 50-50 now or 75% for themselves, 25% for the big houses. Um, And they're making great wine. We also see garagey-style wineries here in the New World, especially here in Canada. You see somebody who has three, four acres that they have planted and they've grown and 
they sell a bunch to the bigger wineries and then they keep a little bit for themselves and they've developed these tiny labels that maybe bottle 200 to 500 cases a year where the big guys are bottling 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 cases a year. It's a big difference there. All right. So how do you know if you're drinking a new world or an old world bottle? So, well, if you bought the bottle in a shop, you probably picked it out yourself, and the shop was most likely organized by region or at least by country. So by country, I mean you could see a sign that says France, United States, or Australia. And by region, you might have seen a sign that says Bordeaux, Champagne, Napa Valley, Willamette Valley, Clare Valley, Connewara. See what I did there? It's two regions from each country. So France, Bordeaux, and Champagne, the United States, Napa Valley, and Willamette Valley, Australia, Clare Valley, and Connewara. A lot of valleys because of the way that uh, the climate is in a valley. It tends to be cooler in the mornings, warmer in the afternoons. It's really good for growing grapes. We like to grow grapes in valleys. An old world wine will generally be labeled by region first, so say Bordeaux, then by the producer, Chateau Lafitte, for example, then by the vintage, so 2012, as an example. Whereas a new world wine will be have either a name, so something like Apothic, or its producer, somebody like Wolfblas, for example, first. Following that will be the varietal, so Chardonnay, or Cabernet Sauvignon, or even just red blend. Then the region, so that could be, uh, it could say Napa Valley, it could say Russian River Valley, which is part of the Napa Valley, which is obviously then in um, California in the United States. And then it finishes up with the vintage. It's kind of assumed by old world producers that if you're buying a bottle from them and their region, that you know what grapes are in that bottle. Now, again, some of that younger generation of winemaker is starting to put the varietal of varietals on the back label along with their story or some tasting notes. So the, f- <coughs> excuse me, the front label will still be that very traditional looking label, but the back will have, you know, this is a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and Merlot, for example, if you are looking at a Bordeaux. So... For example, old world wine regions assume that if you're drinking Chablis, it's assumed that you know it was made from Chardonnay grapes grown in the Chablis Chab region of the Burgundy region of France. But if you're drinking Brunello di Monticiliano, people assume you know it's made from 100% Sangiovese grapes grown in the vineyards surrounding Monticiliano in the province of Siena in the region of Tuscany in the country of Italy. Okay, I get it. Old world wines are way, way harder to decipher than new world wines. So if you're at a restaurant, usually the menu is, again, divided by region, subregion, or at a bare minimum by country. It might be divided by grape, which makes it a little easier for you. Um, So that's where, personally for me, new world wines are a little easier when you're starting to get into the wine industry. Because at a glance, just by looking at that label, you know exactly what region it's from or what grape it's from. So you'll know if you're a big Australian 
red drinker and you really love the McLaren Vale, you're going to be able to tell just from looking at that label, that's a bottle that I'm probably going to like. If you know, for example, you love Sauvignon Blanc from any region, you're going to know New World just from looking at it that you're going to like it. And sometimes, yeah, if it's a generic name, something like Apothic or I have one from South Africa right now in my closet called Old Bill, you're probably going to be able to figure out what the blend is, though, a whole lot easier than if you were trying to figure it out from somewhere like Bordeaux or Monticelliano or Tuscany. Uh, Now, does it really matter? Personally, I'd say probably not as much as people like to think. I don't think that old world versus new world is as big of a thing as people like to think it is. Sure, it's great to know where your wine comes from. And absolutely, the generalizations we talked about earlier can help you determine what kind of wines you like better. The softer, rounder old world wines or the bolder, sharper new world ones. If you get really into wine or you fall down that rabbit hole, you can certainly become really nerdy and thirst for the knowledge of just what vineyard a wine comes from. Like literally there are wines that come from a single vineyard site and they come from maybe 50 vines within that vineyard site. And you can get really, really, really nerdy and fall down some really crazy rabbit holes by going down that geographical old world, new world kind of idea. Personally, I drink just as much old world wine as new world wine and I don't really have a preference for which I drink. Um, sometimes it's price point. Old world wines tend to have a bit of a higher price point. can be a little bit higher to get into. New world wines, a little easier price point wise to get into. Sometimes for me, just goes for what I want to eat. If I'm, I'm a big wine with food person, not really one that cracks a bottle just to drink the glass without dr- having something to eat at the same time. So I tend to want to pair my food with what I'm doing that way. So with that, guys, we'll wrap up another episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you learned a little bit about old world versus new world wines. If you want to drop me a question, a comment, or a show topic idea, I'd love to hear from you. You can do that in a few ways. You can send me an email at drinkswithally at gmail.com. So D-R-I-N-K-S-W-I-T-H-A-L-I at gmail.com. You can head on over to the website, which is drinkswithally.com. D-R-I-N-K-S-W-I-T-H-A-L-I.com. And you can look up episode number 15. You can leave a comment right there on the podcast page. Or you can click the contact button on the website as well. And that contact form will come right to me. You can find me on all the social medias. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, MeWe, and of course Spotify. And you can send me a direct message or a private message on any of those platforms. And like I said, I'd love to hear from you. And if you don't mind, guys, if you're really loving the show, if you could share it with everybody you know, or you could hit the subscribe button on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it. Helps me track who's listening and makes it so that one day we might actually be able to have some sponsors or some sponsored podcasts at least. So with that, fill your glass with something tasty this week. Cheers, everyone.